Hey, it's Doug Bursch here, and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. Have you been feeling a certain level of disillusionment in the last few months? Maybe since the last election? Or even leading up to the election? I don't know about you, but I've been incredibly disillusioned with uh, what the world is doing, what many of my fellow Christians are doing. On today's show, we're going to talk about how to have radical faith in the presence of profound disillusionment, how to curse the tree that isn't producing fruit to make room for a radical revolution. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken. Thanks for joining the show today. This is the Fairly Spiritual Show, and I am Doug Bursch. Uh, so, uh, man, are you feeling disillusioned at all? Hopefully not with this show. Of course not with this show. Nothing but positive. You know, you just, it's always everything you hoped for and more. Uh, but I, I just got to be honest here, uh, not like I'm normally lying, but I've been incredibly disillusioned with the world. This sense of alienation is just, uh, I don't know, extreme, really. And uh, I know others are feeling this way as well. Now, in sharing my thoughts here, I am not trying to make others feel judged. If you are happy and excited and you think God is doing exactly what God should be doing and the world is moving in the right direction, I am not trying to judge you by having a different opinion. But part of this podcast is just to be brutally honest. So I'm just going to be honest. I hope you accept me in my honesty. I will accept you in yours. Uh, for me, I have been nothing but completely shocked by the fact that people voted for Donald Trump. Just shocked. I, I, I could not imagine it. And I got to tell you that there were some fundamental things in me where I realized I was just wrong. I am not a radical far left person. I'm not a radical far right person. I did a Christian radio show for five years on a very conservative Christian radio platform. I tried to make my show moderate. I thought I had my finger on the pulse of what Christianity is like in America. And I had no idea the kind of voting pattern that would occur on election night or even leading up to election night that the Republicans could pick someone like Donald Trump to be uh, a presidential candidate, uh, let alone president. Uh, leading up to uh, the election, I wrote blogs and posts about the fact that just his personality, and again, this is not about even his politics, which I sometimes don't really know what those are, uh, just his personality, his character, uh, I felt disqualified him from leading any position. I, I said, and this is not hyperbole, this is me not trying to be a radical. Again, I'm not trying to judge anyone out there who feels differently than me, but he's someone I would not allow to take on any position in the church I serve. Uh, someone I would have been very concerned with if they had started talking to me in my church 
in the church I serve about wanting to have any leadership position because I just didn't see any of the fruit of the Spirit in him. I don't see any contrition. I don't see any humility. I don't see someone who even has really an awareness. Um, in fact, I see someone who, to me, has probably a psychologically a narcissistic personality disorder. If you look up narcissistic personality disorder, uh, he has, to me, those traits. And this isn't a slam. It's just I see that. And so seeing people accept him and vote for him and make to me false equivalences like, well, you know, he's just not any worse than the other side. This is a totally different thing to me, different than any other political setting. I've, I've never felt that way about any candidate ever. So anybody who wants to write me off as well, you know, Doug's just being a progressive here. That That is not me. You know, I mean, you could uh, you can throw in a normal McCain or a, a normal Bob Dole or you know, even a normal Mitt Romney or something, but I just, I I could not imagine what happened. I, I just, I couldn't imagine it. And I can't imagine the way, not only was he elected, but I'm, I'm seeing Christians respond in ways of justifying behavior where they're just all in in justifications. I just can't imagine it. Again, you know, people can do two things. You know, we human minds have the ability to do this. You can say, hey, you know, that behavior, that way of talking is totally inappropriate, yet I agree with that person's policy on gun control. You can say that. You can say, I agree with that person's policy on fiscal responsibility, on tax cuts, on w whatever the issue is, but the way they are communicating is totally inappropriate. You can do both things. You don't have to justify everything about a person uh, to support some aspects of that person. And yet, what I've seen is just a complete embrace that is frightening to me. Even now, as sharing these things, I know by sharing these things, some people will be really upset at me just for sharing that. I would think that is a sensible thing, what I'm sharing. I, I will read to my kids. I'm, I'm not someone who's ranting and raving with my kids about politics. But I will just read something uh, in uh, Donald Trump's Twitter feed to my kids. Just read it to them. And they right away know what it is. They can recognize the immaturity of it. They can just recognize it immediately. They, they, they just know. My, my, my younger son can say, when we act immature at school, we call it being presidential. I mean, they... They understand that. They understand, like they were taught when they were very young, that you don't, you don't say always and never. You, you, you never say always and never. You don't, you don't ever say, you know, I'm the only person who can do this, or I'm the best person to do this. You don't. That's not what a. That's not how you talk intelligently. That's not. That's not what you do. That's not an appropriate way to talk. You, you don't insult people. You, you don't give names of insults to people. You don't. You just don't do that. There's a certain way to behave regardless of how you, you view other people. And to see people just embrace these things or, or make it a little thing, like it's no big deal, is profoundly troubling to me. So it's incredibly isolating. It's incredibly isolating to me the way I see uh, Christians responding to race relations in America. One of the things we have to deal with the fact is, if you do it, look at any kind of polls, or and, and again, polls should be the reason we do things. We should do it with, because of a moral conviction. But you look at this, you know, polls will show like 80% or 90% of blacks feel a certain way about an issue. They'll, they'll, they'll see, let's say, racial injustice in, in, in a certain issue. 
Now, if 80% of, of blacks feel a certain way about something, that's a large percentage. That's a really huge percentage. So I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to realize, and even if from the outside, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't quite understand that, or, or maybe I don't see it that way. I'm going to assume that I must just not know reality because I'm not going to assume that the vast majority of a people group are just ignorant. I'm just not going to assume, yeah, you know, 80 to 90% of all people who are black just don't know what they're talking about. They're, you know, they just must be foolish. I'm just going to educate them on how to view race. There's just something to me in that that is fundamentally wrong. Like I, I would, I would have to be incredibly arrogant to do that, to say, yeah, I know, you know, 90% or 85% of blacks view this issue as being an issue of racial injustice, but, but you just don't understand. So let me explain to you how to really see it. I, I couldn't do that. Even if I didn't understand the issue at all, I'd have to say, well, there must be a disconnect here. If one people group almost unanimously view it one way, then I need to learn, I need to facilitate a conversation. I need to really get in there and figure out what's the divide here? What's the problem in America where one people group can have such a strong, unanimous consensus about the way things are? And if my response is going to be, well, they're just ignorant, they just don't know, I would think that would be the most demeaning response. And in fact, I would think that would probably be a racist response. Well, you guys are just ignorant. If you were just wise as the rest of us, and if I saw an issue where one group felt like they were being oppressed, they, they saw that there were injustices, and the vast majority of them believed there were injustices, and they believed the injustices were being uh, perpetrated by, let's say, white people, as the one that they believed was the perpetrator or a part of the perpetrating class, I would be very reluctant to come in and say, let me tell you why you're wrong and let me tell you how to view it and let me tell you why you're ignorant. And yet I'm seeing that kind of dialogue as well. Instead of a great humility, instead of a great, you know, boy, we, we really got to deal with this. We really got to understand that this divide is great. And before we go out and tell people, well, I, you're just seeing it wrong. You just got to see it the way out. You just got to stop your complaining. You know, you just got to see it the way we see it. That maybe we would listen. I, and I'm, I'm incredibly disillusioned with the extremism, the polarized extremism and the polarized extremism between far right and far left. And, and, and literally, it is so extreme that there's no place for the moderate. Some people, when you say you're a moderate, they say things like, well, you know, to be a moderate is like that scripture where you're either hot or you're cold or I'll spit you out of my mouth. You know, that, that scripture is talking about Jesus, about your salvation, about, about following Jesus. It's not talking about whether you believe maybe there should be uh, no background check loopholes at gun shows. That's, that's, that's a different thing uh, when we talk about being a moderate. But literally, there is such extremism and there's such polarization that for me, you know, I just get, there's an alienation. And, and, it, and it bothers me the fact that I have to be afraid just to, this is, this is just my opinions. You could say, you know, Doug, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, but I love you. But we're in such a 
in such a crazy environment that by me just doing this, people will unfollow me, people will hate me, people will be angry towards me, they'll say vile things about me, they'll call me a heretic because I might have a differing view about how we handle gun control, or how we handle our tax structure, or how we handle the balance between governmental regulations and the ability for commerce to, be, to you know, operate freely without regulations and licenses. That literally we've made everything so important that this extremist rhetoric has broken in, this polarizing rhetoric. And I'm disillusioned. I don't even know how to, how to respond, how to engage anything. And it's frustrating. It's, it's overwhelming. And it's so overwhelming that you just, you say, what, what, what can you even do? And it's so overwhelming because the people, it seems like it's not like just one side. It's, it's this whole worthless coin. I'll say it like this. It's this worthless coin. There's, a, there's an extreme, and I'll see this, for instance, with Christians, like with legalism. I'll see this extreme far-right legalism. I'm extreme, you know, far-right Christian legalism, not about politics, just extreme far-right legalism. Like you got to do these 20 things to be righteous, and there's all this oppression, and there's a strong, you know, judgmentalism, and there's all the shame. And, and so people are born in this shameful, judgmental, legalistic culture. And so they leave that shameful, judgmental, legalistic culture, and then they go way over to the other side, and they become these shame-based progressives who judge the shame-based legalistic conservatives. And we have these two groups fighting against each other on the internet, each contending for what Christianity should be about. And it's crazy. You look at some of the extreme progressives and the extreme conservatives, and often they came from the same church. Or one, their, their father used to be the president of a denomination, and now they're fighting against what their dad did, or they're fighting against what their parents did. And it's like some really bad family reunion acting itself out in the Twitter sphere or on Facebook. But when you look at it, it looks just like two worthless sides of a worthless coin. The people aren't worthless, but the dialogue seems so destructive and polarizing. Everyone fighting for their position, rejecting that group, isolating from that group, castigating, ridiculing, disowning. And you try to jump into the conversation and say, well, you know, I'm, I kind of think, you know, well, maybe she's right, and, but he has a point, and you just get what? You get shot from all sides. So you get disillusioned. You just you just stay quiet. It's like a Thanksgiving table, and Uncle Earl is giving his opinions, and he starts fighting with Aunt May, and you're just like, I'm going to leave the table and go play ping pong in the other room. So what do we do in response to this disillusionment? Well, I was reading uh, in Scripture the other, day, uh, the other day, and Scripture, by the way, is a good place to start and a good way to end, and I was reading when Jesus curses the fig tree, and, and in Mark I was reading, this to my congregation, in Mark eleven twelve, Jesus comes to a fig tree, and I'll just read this. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, before you just think Jesus is just kind of a jerk cursing fig trees for no reason, if you look at this a little deeper, you realize it makes a little bit more sense. Uh, the life cycle of a fig tree is like this, in case you didn't know, in case you're not an expert on fig trees. I'm an expert because I looked it up about, you know, two weeks before you did. So <laughs> a fig tree, first it will flower. And then after it flowers, the leaves will start growing and the figs will grow. So the figs and the leaves grow together. 
So if you see a fig tree with leaves on it, you should be able to see small figs. And those small figs are edible. They're not the best to eat, but they're not bad. They taste like figs. Jesus could have come to that tree, eaten some small figs, gained some nourishment from them. A little between-mill snack. So when Jesus goes to that fig tree, he should have expected to find some figs. Now, the translation here, it says it was not the time for figs. What it's probably saying, it was not the time for ripe figs. And it's saying that because if it was the time for ripe figs, maybe the tree had been cleared of all those ripe figs. Maybe some disciples had come before Jesus and taken all the figs. That would have been rude. You know, he came over there. The fig tree had done its part, produced some good figs. People had taken the figs away. Jesus comes and there's no figs there and he curses the tree. The tree's like, what, what are you doing here? I already produced figs. Somebody else ate those figs. That's not what's going on here. Jesus comes to this fig tree. It's in full leaf. There should be some small figs. There are no figs. Why is this a problem? If there are no small figs now, there will be no ripe figs later. So this fig tree is basically just an ornamental fig tree that will not produce any fruit. It has no fig tree purposes. It's just ornamental. So Jesus curses the fig tree. You say, okay, that's interesting. What are the theological reasons for this? What's the sermon we can preach? Well, this is one of the few times in Mark where a story is split up, where a story is told, and then another story is told, and then we go back to this story. So Mark moves on from Jesus cursing this fig tree to tell us another story. And the next story that comes is Jesus clearing out the temple. The next story that comes, it says, and they came to Jerusalem and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. And they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teachings. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here's Jesus making the big move where there's no going back now. He goes into the city, causes a ruckus in the temple, turns over the tables, clearly makes his stand that now's the time to move things forward. Now things are going to be put in motion where they're going to go after him. The crucifixion is going to occur. The disciples don't really know what's going to happen next. He's talked about the fact that he's going to die. I don't know if they believe that. But here's what he's done. He's clearly gone into the place of authority and power, turned over the tables and said, this system is going to be destroyed. The way you do things here, it's going to be turned over. Now, here's the story that comes right after that. The next day, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. So we just had that story, Jesus turning over the temple tables, all that stuff. Here comes after it. And they passed by the next morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand, praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, many people have heard that passage and taken it out of context, but there's a bigger story here, and I want to focus in on it. I want you to hear it clearly. 
What is Jesus talking about here? He's not just talking about a fig tree. Before, this fig tree is this, this big fig tree. It's ornamental. It has all these leaves, but it's not producing fruit. This fig tree, this tree, the purpose of this tree, it's a system to produce figs, but the system is not producing figs. It's just a system. It's just ornamental. It has no power to actually produce the purpose for the reason it was planted. The next story is he goes into the temple and this temple system, which is supposed to produce a fruit of righteousness, is not producing fruit. It's just ornamental. It's not working for the purposes that God has designed it for. And Jesus comes in and he turns over the tables. And it's clear what Jesus is saying. This system, this system, this way of being, this religious way of being, this religious way that is not producing fruit, I'm going to replace it. And in its place, I'm going to put a different system. I'm going to put a different way of righteousness, a different way of being that's going to be based upon me. And we'll see this later where what? He says, I'm going to destroy this temple and rebuild it. And the foundation is not going to be a, a building, but the foundation is going to be Jesus Christ himself. But the image is clear. Jesus is not just talking about, you know, pray for miracles in your life. When he says, if you say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea, he's saying, I am calling you to a big endeavor. This whole system you see, the injustices you see around you, where the powerful, the rich, the religious who have control over this system, we're going to take them down. And something better is going to rise up in its place. It's interesting that Jesus even uses the word mountain because mountains are where spiritual things occur. Mountains are where the Ten Commandments come from. Mountains are where you see the burning bush. Mountains are where spiritual activity occurs. And Jesus says, this mountain, this spiritual mountain that is causing deception to the people, oppression to the people is going to be removed if you have faith and believe. He's looking at the disciples and saying, this whole thing, you're just 12 disciples. You're just a what? A ragtag group of fishermen, uh, maybe a former tax collector there, just some people wandering around in the area of Galilee, this group is going to radically change the way we worship God, the way we serve others, the way we love, the way we gather together, the way we form the community of God. This old system is going to die and a new system is going to rise up in its place if you have faith and believe. We read the Bible from the perspective of, you know, it's already happened, it's all done. But at the time, even after Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave and ascended to the Father, it was still just a small group of people surrounded by this giant system that did not honor the righteousness of God. But Jesus says, have faith and believe. This mountain, this impossible mountain is going to be moved. I bring this to you today because right now we are surrounded by things that disillusion us. There are things, there are racial injustices that disillusion us. But by faith we believe, we go home, we pray, we believe by faith that this mountain will be moved and then we go out and we do the work of the kingdom. And we live by faith until we go home to be with the Father or the Father comes home to take us home. We by faith believe that this mountain will be moved. If we see injustices in the way the church is behaving, if we see the church is behaving in ways that is contrary to the will of God, we can hide out, 
we can, you know, just complain, we can sit around and tweet, or we can go home and we can pray, we can pray together, and then we can believe by faith that this mountain will be moved. And when we believe by faith that a mountain will be moved, we put those beliefs into action and we begin to carry our cross and we begin to follow the path that Christ has given us. And we do as the disciples did, is we carry this gospel and we carry this kingdom into the world. And we face whatever comes. And we do whatever it takes. We live by faith, we die by faith, but we believe that this mountain will be moved. For those of you who are disillusioned, you are closer than ever to hearing the voice of God. For those of you who are disillusioned, you are closer than ever to the ability to live by faith, to live as they lived in the New Testament era. Although Jesus Christ died rose from the grave and ascended to the Father and poured out the Holy Spirit. After the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was still just a small church of people surrounded by a world full of injustices. All they had was the resurrected presence of Jesus Christ, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and faith to believe that this mountain will be moved and a greater kingdom will rise up in its place. And that's what we believe by faith as well a greater kingdom will rise up in its place. Now is not the time for cynicism. Now is not the time for despair. Now is the time to do the work of the kingdom. When things are impossible, we go to the one who created all to help us with these impossible endeavors. When things seem possible, we don't go to God in prayer. When things seem easy to accomplish, we do it in our own strength, in our own power, in our own cleverness. But when things seem impossible, we go to the one who created the mountain to help us move that mountain. Now, I know this still sounds like foolishness, but I'd rather live as a fool for God, contending to move unjust mountains, unjust systems, corrupt programs, corrupt churches, corrupt governmental institutions, Whatever that corruption is, whatever that thing that seems insurmountable, I would rather pray for and live for and contend for activity that removes that mountain than give up. I'd rather be a fool and do that than give up. I just would. Those are my options. My options are to believe that this mountain will be moved are to give up and just live for things that rust and corrode and fade away. I can just consume stuff and work for a bigger house and a nicer car and a little bit more, what, better savings account or maybe a savings account. or I can live for things that rust and corrode and fade away. Or I can work tirelessly for a better kingdom. I'm disillusioned. You might be disillusioned as well. And whether or not you disagree with me about how bad things are politically, or whether or not you disagree with me about how th bad things are racially, there is something that God has put on your heart. I know every single person listening, there is something God has put on your heart. There's something in your heart that you think needs to be changed, but it seems overwhelming. Maybe it's the fact that the home is broken. You see broken homes. Maybe it's the fact that the family is no longer together. You see broken families. Maybe it's the fact that there's homelessness around you. Maybe it's the fact that mental illness is not taken seriously in the church and there are people struggling with, with mental illness and there's no place of help and hope for them. 
There are so many different issues that seem impossible, and God has put it on your heart. But because it seems impossible or is impossible, you've been reluctant to take that next step. Maybe it's the fact that there needs to be more churches. There needs to be more church plants, or maybe there needs to be more women in ministry, or maybe there needs to be more resources for youth or college, or maybe there needs to be more people going to retirement homes to help the elderly. There are things that seem so impossible, and on your heart, you think about these things all the time, but you've been reluctant to move because it seems impossible. It seems like a mountain that's too great. I'd ask you to curse the unjust systems and to wait for a better kingdom to rise up in its place. To say this current system is not producing fruit, I'm going to pray and seek and contend for a better kingdom. This current system is not producing fruit. This current way of being is not making it. So I will contend for a better kingdom. Lord Jesus, I ask for every single one of us, we could unite in this purpose, to have faith to believe that you've placed in our hearts, on our hearts, the ability to contend by faith for radical transformation in our society. Help us to take that next step. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, I so much appreciate you listening. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can email me at evergreenlife at mac.com. That's evergreenlife at mac.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Fairly Spiritual. You can go to my website, fairlyspiritual.org. I'd love for you to pick up my new book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. You can get that at Amazon or find it at my website at fairlyspiritual.org. Make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. His theme music is by my brother Dan. Check out his music on iTunes. I'll see you next time. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through. But you've spoken by your word. dreams with you